Well, as we prepare our now to, to turn to hearing God's word, let's, let's pray that uh, his word would be, uh, be made known to us clearly this morning. Lord, all of our life and strength and health, everything we have is derived from you. Everything that we have seen and unseen is from you. Lord, our, our spiritual strength is from you. Even our ability to hear and to respond to your word is from you. And admittedly this morning, there are some, some, some weighty things that are in our, in our, our text that we're beginning to, uh, to, to hear and to, to think about this morning. We pray that you would open our hearts to be able, and our minds to be able to understand it, to be able to receive it well, that you would continue to change us and form us as complete people in Christ. We need your spirit to be with us this morning, your spirit to be with the one who's preaching this morning as well. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. We're beginning a new series this morning going through the book of Lamentations. Uh, so you can turn to the, the book of Lamentations there uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, as many of us may be because it's not a book we turn to. It's Old Testament. There are probably two ways you can find it. One is uh, find the, the pages in your Bible that are probably stuck together because we don't go to Lamentations very often. Uh, if indeed, though, your pages don't stick together there, uh, you'll find it after the book of Jeremiah, which is, a very, which is a pretty lengthy book in the Old Testament. So if you find Jeremiah, flip over a few more pages and you'll get to Lamentations right after it. Lamentations, as the title would have us know, it is a book of sorrow. Lamentations is one big long poem that is composed of five shorter elegies, all reflecting upon suffering and the historical event of suffering for these people, which was the lament of the city of Zion, the city of Jerusalem, as it was sacked and destroyed by Babylon in 586 B.C. Jerusalem is referred to over and over in the book of Lamentations as Zion. The, the, the name Zion is a reference in particular to God's relationship with the city of Jerusalem and with its people there, as the, the place where he dwelt uh, as the, the, the city of which he, he, and its people where he took to himself. And all throughout here, Zion is personified. She's speaking, and she's speaking as a woman. So I'll refer to her throughout uh, this sermon and probably throughout the rest of the cities in this way of Lady Zion. And we hear the cries and laments of Lady Zion in her tears. Lady Zion in her shame. Again, it's just composed in the aftermath of Jerusalem's destruction by Babylon, which brought all sorts of shock and horror to the people in the city in ways that they couldn't even imagine. Uh, the city was destroyed and burnt. Uh, people were killed in the streets. Um, children were dashed against the rocks and against the walls. Women were taken uh, young people then were also taken away into exile, into Babylon, into foreign land. The, and per, perhaps most, most shocking and most imaginable to these people was the temple was destroyed. 
The temple was where God's presence dwelled with them in a visible way. And so now that the temple is gone, they're asking these questions. Well, what, was, what is our relationship with the Lord? I thought he was for us. And has he left us now? See, Babylon crushed them like a hammer. But they recognized all this as well that the Lord was the hand who was swinging the hammer. This wasn't happenstance. They knew that this could only happen if he did it to them. And they were reflecting upon, and if, when, when they were reflecting upon the law, they knew that anyways, too, this shouldn't have been a surprise. In the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 28, it gives consequences in the covenant for the people there uh, for disobedience as a nation of what would happen to them. And one of which was this, was being carried off and oppressed by foreign nations. And Jerusalem had years of rebellion and years of rejection of the Lord behind them here, of oppression, of greed, of idolatry. And Lady Zion is left smoldering among the ruins and sitting among the ashes. And with that in mind, then, we have this lament which is composed. Lamentations 1, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. This is God's word. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who is great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the day of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has, out, has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? 
Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire. Into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes overflow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street the sword bereaves. In the house it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. Amen. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. That word that begins with how. Word that we would think about. Alas, right? Maybe not a word that we think of very often or use, but it expresses pity, sorrow. The word intended, though, to provoke reflection as well. How? How did this happen to Zion? Isn't this the city of God's people? Isn't this where the Lord dwelt? So why is she now sitting there like a widow? How? Like that's the original title in Hebrew. How? That's an apt question to ask in the face of suffering. It's the question for Zion to ask. It's the question for us also as the audience and the readers to ask. Lamentations is biblical lament. And that's an important category for us to think about, especially as we are going through lamentations over the the weeks to follow. And so we think about this. What is biblical lament? Biblical lament is offering a complaint to God for an apparent gap in what he's promised and how we experience life in the moment. Now we hear that word complaint and we think, you know, maybe maybe our, our alarm bells go off. Well, isn't complaint wrong? Well, complaint isn't wrong, or rather maybe this, not all complaint is wrong. Right? We, we, we say the words, we hear them, stop complaining. We say them to our kids, we say them to others who are griping. But that's referring to a different sort of complaint. 
a complaint that is whining, a complaint that is, that is griping, right? When someone doesn't get their way, stop complaining. Or when things are hard, stop complaining. In other words, what we're saying there is just deal with it. Stop complaining and get on with things. Suck it up. But that's not the idea of godly complaints that we have in lament. Godly complaint here in lament looks at the incongruencies of life, how things don't seem to fit together when God says one thing and then our circumstances say another. So lament doesn't issue out a whining complaint. Lament doesn't tell us to just grit our teeth and to grind it out. Biblical lament, biblical complaint is the response of people who take seriously what God has told them and looks at the gap And then asks why. What about what you said? Where are you? And it seems antithetical, but lament is actually a faithful response to God. It's more honoring than those alternatives of just buck it up, suck it up here and grit your teeth and go with it. Because it reckons with God's veracity, with his truthfulness. It takes his word seriously, and it puts his promise, it puts his word, his truth at the center. And then it forces us then to rehearse truth in the face of sorrow. In the times when we might otherwise be tempted to just hang it all up. Lament, and the book of Lamentations here, is for those people who suffer. But it's not just for those who suffer, it's also for those who observe suffering also. Sorrow and grief doesn't only come to those in the midst of pain, right? It also happens as we see pain. It happens as we see suffering. It happens as we witness circumstances of grief and when we we see image bearers who are under all of its burden. Lament happens when we undergo grief and when we observe grief. The grief of friends, the grief of family, the the grief of events and tragedy that's both near to us and that's far off. And we look at all of those times and we cry out, God, where are you? Because this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. Lament is a natural disposition of people who know the weariness, or sorry, people who know the vastness and wonder of God's promises. But they also know the calamity of the fall and how deep it really goes. You don't need to be suffering yourself or to have suffered deeply to appreciate Lamentations. It's a book that's for sufferers and it's a book that prepares us to suffer and it's for God's people as they reckon with suffering, whether it's personal or whether it's far off. So Lamentations 1, we witness the suffering of Lady Zion. We are intended to move us We see her at a distance at the beginning there, and then she calls to us later. Lady Zion calls out to us here to see and to witness her suffering. There's going to be times later where we're brought into it more, and and it really contemplates suffering for our own self. But here, Lady Zion's calling out to us here this morning, and she invites us to see her ruin, to see her grief and her suffering. Second, she invites us to to hear her groaning and to give consideration to her words. In the end here, we're left to, to raise her complaint with her, which is our complaint as well. We're going to look at those three. So first, 
We need to see her suffering and weep with her. See her suffering and weep. We have the lonely city, Lady Zion, smoldering in her ruins. And we see the the scene from a safe distance. Isn't distance between ourselves and suffering the safe thing to do? But But we're invited, though, in this poem, in this elegy, to come closer. To enter into the gates of Zion. To walk around. To look at the city from within. And observe all of her sufferings and her pain firsthand. We see in verses 1 and 2. The once great Lady Zion here. Now she sits as a widow. She's alone in her anguish. Left to weep alone in the darkness. Abandoned by who she thought were her friends. But they were actually in the end revealed to be her enemies who just simply used her for their own purposes and then cast her aside. And she sits there all alone. Who's there to comfort her? She's a widow. Her husband is gone. Her sons and her daughters have been taken away. She has no friends. She has no companions to give her comfort. And even the Lord God himself seems to be absent. Most horrifying for this all here. Where is the Lord in all of this? There's no sign of him in the aftermath. The temple is gone. There's no sign of his presence. There's no sign of him in the destruction itself. His protection, it seems, has been withdrawn. And she remembers her honor and glory that she had in verse six, or sorry, in verse seven. And then she says on, it's replaced with shame in verses eight and nine. I mean, imagine the shame and the embarrassment that she must have felt there. Those who she thought were her friends, her allies, her companions, those who she even gave herself to as lovers, in the end, they just proved to shame her. Those who she thought were her lovers, in the end, lifted up her skirts and exposed her nakedness and pointed and laughed and mocked her. And they only used her. They had fun. They had their fun. And she's left with nothing but death and destruction and despair and destitution and the pain of realizing that she gave herself to people who only used her. Lady Zion here cries out to anyone who will hear. Friends, do we hear? Do we look at her anguish and do we mourn with her? We may not have been there. But do we hear her cries and do we sorrow and lament with her? Having regard for someone's suffering is to recognize their dignity. It's to recognize the image of God that he created them with. And lament is to recognize that image and to see it as been busted, as broken and dragged so low and down through the mud. And if we have indifference and if we just simply pass by that sort of suffering as image bearers, it is to dehumanize them. Right? What happened in the, in the Holocaust? What was the rhetoric that was used against the Jews? It was ways that dehumanized them. It took away, or it sought to, to, to take away the image of God from them. Stripped them of all dignity so that they simply became not people, but beasts. There's a pain that happens all around us. People who suffer people who mourn, people who are crushed all around us. And to recognize their pain then is to recognize their dignity as image bearers of the living God. 
If there's a distance between ourselves and others, then seeing them as fellow image bearers helps to close that gap. Now, I said before that distance between us and suffering is safe. Realizing someone's pain and truly seeing it ought to awaken our own sorrow. We can't be passive if we understand that the image bearers are also suffering. There is so much news that we have all across the world of people who are suffering, whether it be famine, disasters, attacks, refugees, whatever it is. And we are inundated with so much news about these and with anonymous people that are, that are in faraway places and it seems like there are statistics more than people. What do we think? Do we remember that they are image bearers? That they are real people who are actually suffering? We even think about our own soil. We put distance between us and those who are suffering here. I mean, one instance here we can think of, of shootings and gun violence. Remember when it used to only simply be uh, something that didn't happen very often, but now it happens so frequently now that it's only the extremely heinous acts that happen or the ones that are close to home in some way. Those are the only, only ones that seem to move the needle anymore. Because there's safety in in anonymity and distance. There are people all around us that we encounter every day who are full of pain and sorrow. But how often are we truly moved to grieve their situation? Perhaps it's because they are relatively anonymous to us. And perhaps that's why the poet invites us to walk about Lady Zion and to survey her ruins And to hear her cries of suffering. When we begin to have a context for suffering, then we begin to move into it. And it doesn't matter if they're far or near. What matters is seeing them in the image of God and seeing how badly that image then has been cast down. The glory of humanity is the image of God. And so do we weep when we see the pain of image bearers? Friends, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Second, though, we also are to hear her groans and consider. Hear her groans, not just look at her suffering, but to hear her cries and groans and give consideration to her words. Lady Zion then, sitting in her sorrow and ashes, she now, though, begins to speak to us. There is a recognition of her pain in verses 9 and 11. She begins to address the Lord. Lord, do you see? Verse 9, O Lord... Behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. She addresses us in the second half of the lament. How did all of this happen here? Well, she begins to tell us. To her, it's a very clear answer. She brought it on herself. Or rather, we could say the Lord brought this upon her because of all that she did. Her sin was the cause. It was her rebellion to her covenant Lord. She, make, she just flat out states that right there in verse 14. It's my transgression that's been bound into a yoke. Verse 18, the Lord did to me what was right. In verse 22 then she says, you dealt with me because of all my transgressions. There's a full acknowledgement of her suffering here. She has full acknowledgement of why it happened. It was Babylon, but it was also God. And it was God Because it was Jerusalem's unfaithfulness. God didn't didn't watch in amazement. It was ultimately his doing. 
And she speaks it in a very matter-of-fact way. There's no theologizing here. There's no postulating. She's just giving this simple acknowledgement. There are times to consider the deep theological questions that we have of suffering and God. But at the same time, a book like Job reminds us that there are times to just simply lay our hands on our lips to be silent, acknowledge that God works in his ways. There are important theological questions about God and suffering, but it's, so, it's possible for us to fix our, to, to be, to be fix our, God, our, our, our gaze upon our own belly buttons contemplating these things that we miss the people who are right around us and we grow numb to suffering, to the real suffering that's around us. So let's listen to her further. Though what is her sin? She says, taking on other lovers. Taking on other lovers. At the beginning there we read, how like a widow has she become? We think, well, what happened to her husband? Was her husband killed in the destruction? Who was her husband? The Lord. She was married to him, But verse 2 says that she took on other lovers. Idolatry is described in the Bible as adultery. And that happens when we understand the relationship between God and his people. We understand that relationship of being exclusive, an exclusive covenant relationship, just like marriage is between a husband and a wife. Exclusivity there. And so turning aside then from the Lord to find meaning and to find hope and satisfaction in anything else is unfaithfulness. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. And that helps us to frame the seriousness of our own sin. It helps us to understand how God's displeasure and his anger is just. Right? What sort of spouse would let his or her... Um, uh, what sort of person would, would, would allow his or her spouse to let slide an adulterous relationship? I mean, not if they love the other one deeply. God loves his people deeply. Unfaithfulness doesn't disappoint him. Unfaithfulness inflames his anger. And part of the anguish in idolatry is the adulterous consequences of a wrong spouse. But part of the consequences are also that they will never deliver as hoped for. Lady Zion is left destitute and alone. What is her comfort? Where did all of her lovers go that she went after? They left her in ruin. And that's poignant as we consider her lament. Idolatry will get us nowhere. No substitute for God will get us nowhere. There is no comfort to be found, no real comfort. It uh, it offers nothing more than just a brief moment of exhilaration without the lasting covenant faithfulness there. Again, there's no theologizing here between God and suffering in, in lamentations here, in her words. But as we hear the words, though, as we hear her talking about it, it's still, though, intended to provoke reflection. Lady Zion's suffering was a result of her sin. She recognizes that clearly. And we could all think of examples of consequences that arise out of sin, right? We don't need any examples there because we can think of them ourselves. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean that the inverse is true. It doesn't mean that personal sin always causes suffering or that all of our personal suffering is caused by our own personal sin. 
All reasons for lament and suffering don't have a direct corollary to personal sin. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples, they encounter a man who is born blind. And the disciples say, Jesus, who, who sinned, the, the, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. It's neither. It's actually something much, beyond, much more beyond that, so that the glory of God might be proclaimed. In our reading that we had, our New Testament reading from Luke 13 this morning, and it was a, uh, an account or, or, or a relaying an account about a, a, a tower that had fallen down on, in the city of Jerusalem and some of the people had died from it. And, and they're asking, well, did that tower fall on them because they were worse sinners? And Jesus says, no, no, no. That's not the point. If their sin, if them being a worse sinner was the reason that they died, well, maybe then you should ask, why didn't the tower fall on you? It's not a matter of, how, of, of, of suffering there coming because of a direct consequence of, of your own sin. If so, why shouldn't you, shouldn't you ask, why don't I suffer a lot more? Why didn't God just go ahead and take me a long time ago? Yet still, though, we must acknowledge that sometimes we bring suffering on ourselves by our own decision. But we ought, though, still to lament the consequences of anguish that come as a result of sin. And that doesn't have to dismiss or, d- dismiss or diminish the reality of sin. Zion, Lady Zion acknowledges her sin, and still we're called to lament with her. See, both of those can be acknowledged as we see real suffering. You may remember in the year 2016 at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, which was a gay nightclub. Someone came in there in the middle of, the, of, of, of all of the, the revelry that was happening there and they shot 49 people dead and 53 people wounded. It was the largest uh, mass shooting in America until Las Vegas only a few years later. Now, one response that, that was, 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 was taken by some was said that they shouldn't have been in there in the first place and they wouldn't have suffered if they weren't entertaining their sexual desires. And to be, to, just to, for clarity's sake, well, the things that were going in there, on in there, were very wicked. And they were depraved things. But at the same time, though, isn't it right to lament the loss of life? We can lament the sin itself also because those were 49 people who were bore the image of God who were then shot dead and 53 who bore the trauma of being shot and wounded also. Shouldn't we, all, shouldn't we lament that something like that happened even though, even though they were there by their own sin? Or we can think of this example too. A woman marries a man who has all sorts of red flags, coercion into sex, uh, exhibiting all sorts of control over her uh, manipulative behaviors. And then that, 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 that marriage then begins to turn into an abusive relationship. Well, what is the response that you would give when she comes to you? Would you say, well, you shouldn't have married him in the first place? Or would you lament the suffering and the pain and the anguish with her? What's the right thing to do? These are image bearers of God. Point three here, what we would do, we do is raise a complaint. And that's here what we have, raise her complaint with her, with Lady Zion. 
Lady Zion's complaint here comes to the center at the end in verses 21 and 22. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. It's a cry for justice. Take justice for me, Lord. I've done wicked things, but so have they. And so what are you going to do about it? Will you let them go free? That's not justice, Lord. You see all evil. Right? It might sound odd to us. I did wrong, but so did they. So take justice on them. It's almost like trying to adjudicate between two kids who get caught doing something they shouldn't. But what is it, though, that Lady Zion is bringing forward? What is it that she's appealing to? The Lord's righteousness. It was his righteousness that put her in that, in that position. It was an act of his rightful judgment upon her. But his righteousness, though, is also the foundation for hope. His righteousness always was the foundation for hope because time and again, Israel was given over to their enemies. And every time, though, the Lord stepped in and intervened and brought restoration. Just read the book of Judges. The things that happen over and over again, some frankly very depraved acts that happen over and over. Lord, why don't you just be, be done with these people? It's because of his covenant promise. It was founded upon his promise. In fact, Deuteronomy 28 that I mentioned earlier, when, when God said that this is what's going to happen to you all as a, as a people, as a nation, if you are unfaithful to me, if you break the covenant. But you know what, though, is going to happen? In my faithfulness, because I'm a covenant God, I'm going to be faithful to raise you up again. Zion is offering up this cry. Act righteously towards all evil, just as, as you have said. Do so and we'll be restored. Take note of my affliction. Have regard for us as a suffering people and be righteous to us yet again. In verse 9, she says, the enemy has triumphed. No, not my enemy. She says, the enemy. In other words, my enemy is your enemy, Lord. Our enemy. Your honor is on the line here too because of how you've bound yourself to us by your promise. See, appeal and complaint is based upon covenantal relationship. That's the basis of comfort amid lament. It's the relationship with God that is sealed by his promise. It says, will you be who you say that you are, God? That's the hope in lament. Right? What is the hope as we witness suffering and we see so much wrong in the world and we cry out? What is the hope as we endure the sufferings of our own? It's the righteousness of the Lord. It's his covenant faithfulness. And that's why our appeals and our laments are heard. It gives rise to our, our hopes. God could have just left Zion in her ruins. He could have seemingly abandoned her and just let her, left her all together. And he could have been perfectly just from one, from one perspective. But he raised her up again. He brought her restoration as a people, brought her back eventually someday, 70 years later from Babylon, just as he promised before. Why? Because he made a promise. And he's perfectly just, and he fulfills all of his promises, and he is faithful to remain committed to those promises that he makes, even at his own cost. The promise that he made would lead them, or lead him, to suffer for us, to suffer for us as image bearers, his, for his people who are brought into depths by our own sin. 
It happened through Jesus. Jesus himself, the Son of God who would know suffering. Jesus felt his Father's wrath, not for his sin. He's a sinless one, but for our sin. He took it for all of his people. It was for justice to be done, for righteousness to be complete. And so that the gap between between God and our experience of present sufferings and is bridged by God's covenant faithfulness found and exhibited perfectly in Jesus. The one who is the means of our hope. The one who is the basis of our lament. We can issue complaint because God doesn't seem to be acting as promised. Where are you, God? Why? Are you who you say that you are? What about the promises that you've made for our good? He says, it's all true. That's who I am. I am who I said I am. He says, look to the cross. Look to the resurrection. Look to my character. Look to my actions. Look at all that I've done for you. I gave you my son. I gave you my spirit. Child, trust me. Trust me even in your sorrow, in your weeping, in the night. Because someday the dawn will break forth. It's okay to cry out. We're given plenty of license to cry out. We're given license because we have a whole book about crying out to God. There's a whole section of, of psalms that are all about laments that cry out to God. Jesus himself on the cross. Father, Why have you forsaken me? Not crying out doesn't do justice to the severity of the pain, of the anguish, the darkness, and the suffering. It's real pain. Don't diminish that. There is real pain. Miscarriage is pain. Relational abandonment is pain. Mental illness is real pain. Financial ruin is pain. Disease is pain. All of these are real, legitimate causes for anguish, and they deserve complaint. But God tells us to lament. That it's okay because none of that is the way that it was supposed to be. It's not the way that He created the world. Friends, it's the world that He is bringing renewal and life to. And it's okay for us to lament. It's where we are confronted with God's promises, even in the darkness, where we rehearse them until they become ours and they work themselves into our souls to give us hope. Let's pray. Lord God, we need these words like this. They're deep words. They're heavy words. They're words that likely we will be wrestling with for a long time. But yet we come back again, though, having to realize that no matter what our sorrow or pain is, that you are still there and that you are faithful to your covenant promises. In those times when we question in the dark, let us look to Jesus again. Remind us that we are not slaves to fear, though, but we have given us, you have given us the spirit that reminds us even in the deep times, even in the trials, that we are children of you, adopted into your family, As we come to the table, prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.